right, let's take a look tonight at Jeremiah 15 to 17. I know I didn't give you a heads up as to how far I'd go, but uh, we'll go to 17. Talk to a few people this week, even today, and you notice people a little bit on edge for whatever reason, whatever on edge might mean to you, but uh, uh, I can understand that. Um, in Gen- Genesis, I'm in Jeremiah. In Jeremiah 15, uh, Jeremiah was quite on edge. Uh, let's take a look at a few things here. Um, everything up to this point, I mean, Jeremiah is depressing, certainly up to this point. God's going to destroy Israel. He's going to, uh, they have been rebellious against him for so long, God's made it very clear he's going to destroy them. And he's told Jeremiah to quit praying. In fact, he even says in 15.1, the Lord said to me, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand before me, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them go. Now, I have thought about that I mean, for years, but even more so this week. Um, what would it be like for me if God told me, uh, look, the, the, the church where you're the pastor, no one's going to believe. Um, they're all a bunch of losers. And uh, um, there's nothing you can do. And I thought about that at, at length. That would be the worst news possible. I mean, I, I think I, and I had to wonder, do I do what I do because there's hope? Because I think there's hope in preaching the word? Yes. But at the end of the day, am I just doing this because God told me to do it? Or I feel like God told me to do it? I hope that's the reason, but it wouldn't be any fun. Um, I sat in with the young marriage class on uh, Sunday morning. And because um, one of the young ladies had, had questions she had t- sent to me a couple nights before. Some really deep and wonderful questions. Uh, clearly someone who's listening to the sermon and on fire, actually. And so I answered them on email, and I said, I'm going to come to your class, on, and we're going to go through, we'll go through those together. And it's not my class, it's Marty Kellner's class, but uh, went in and dealt with it, and uh, she was just so excited. And she said, I can't tell you the burden of weight that's lifted off my shoulders from understanding the answers to these questions. From election, doctrine of election, to how Judas could be possessed by the devil in Luke 22, 3. And a bunch of... Little things in between. We had a new couple in there that was wondering, what's my stance? What's our stance in the, as a church on, on election? I told her. She said, no one's ever told me that without saying, um, and, um, and maybe, kind of, sort of. And she said, that was fantastic. I didn't know you, you could be so clear. And I thought, well, I mean, I, I was excited. People, what it tells me that, of that day, and there's been many days like that in the course of my ministry, where I'm able to go home and say, yes, people are still listening. People can still be transformed. And so that, that tells me there's hope. But if God told me, as he told Jeremiah, they're not coming. No one's going to come. And no one's going to uh, come to know Christ. Stop praying. Well, what am I supposed to do? Just go tell them they're going to be judged. Who likes that? And how many ways can Jeremiah say that? Have you noted that? Jeremiah, as he's so repetitive, over and over he's saying, and I thought, well, maybe he's going to different groups every day, and he's doing it. Maybe he's going to the same people every day, and he's just doing it in different ways, and somebody's finally going to tune in. No, God says, no, you can't pray enough. If Moses were here, and all the intervention he did on Israel's behalf back in the Exodus, all that Samuel did for Israel's behalf, if those two men, great prayer warriors that they were, if they were here to pray, I still wouldn't listen. Not listening. I would still send them away. He says there in the middle of verse 2, he said, those destined for death are going to go to death. And those destined for the sword to the sword. Those destined to famine to famine. Those destined for captivity to captivity. I will appoint over them four kinds of doom, declares the Lord. 
the sword to slay, the dogs to drag off, the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth to devour and destroy. Wow. On top of everything you've given me, Lord, that's, that's the end. God says, I will make them an object of horror among the kingdoms of the earth because of Manasseh. Now, if you've never read the Old Testament, you've read through the kings of the Old Testament. You can read about Manasseh in, in uh, 2 Kings and in 2 Chronicles. Um, this was a wicked king, the worst, perhaps, of all kings ever. But something strange happened with Manasseh that only the, the chronicler would tell us. Uh, the one who wrote 2 Kings won't, didn't tell us this. But what did he do? After 55 years of total and complete rebellion, of bringing foreign wicked objects into the temple to worship in front of God all pagan gods and, and sacrifice his own children to the fire. What did Manasseh do at the end of his life? He repented. He came back. He got rid of those images. But when he died, the, the Israelites put them back in there. And then Josiah came around, um, who's the grandson of, of Manasseh. He got rid of it again. But Israel was still stuck with this way of thinking. And so God is saying, I'm doing this because of Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, great, uh, great man, king of Judah. And he tells them uh, that you're doing the same thing. It's not just because of what happened in the past. It's that you're stuck with that. Verse six, you have forsaken me, declares the Lord. You keep going backward. So I will stretch out my hand against you and destroy you. I am tired of relenting. God, tired of relenting. This sounds like my mother when I was a kid. I'm tired. They always say, what, what does a mother always attach, attach onto the word tired? Sick. I am sick and tired. Those just go together. Like chocolate and peanut butter. I'm sick and tired. Verse 7, I will winnow them and with a winnowing fork. Uh, it's like taking a big, huge pitchfork into the, the uh, a pile, big heap of grain. And just pitching it, throwing it up into the air, waiting for the wind to blow the chaff away. This is what God is going to do to the people. At the gates of the land, I will bereave them of children. I will destroy my people. They did not repent of their ways. That's huge. Last verse of, last line of verse 8, anguish and dismay. That's what God has sent. There's a, how many of you know what a soliloquy is? You've probably heard the word. What's that? Who's talking? Oh, Brock. Yeah, it's poetry, but what? It's not so much poetry. You're being poetic with yourself. You're talking. It's like you doing, going away. It would be like me walking away from this, this message and thinking I'm alone and just talking to myself about what I would really like to say or what I really think. That's a soliloquy. Um, Jeremiah, I think, has is, is, is entered into his own soliloquy here. Woe to me, verse 10. My mother that bore you, woe to me, my mother, that you have borne me. Sounds like Job, doesn't he? As a man of strife and a man of contention to all the land. I have not lent, nor have I lent money, have, have men lent money to me, yet everyone curses me. This is a man who, I think, by how I preface this, is understandably discouraged and depressed God, you called me. You told me to do this. You told me these people are now, uh, their anguish and dismay is coming. You're going to destroy them. Well, what, what hope is there? 
Uh, and, and again, I've tried to put myself in his position. I've certainly felt like that before, but there's too much hope in modern ministry uh, to put myself in Jeremiah's shoes completely. Everyone curses me. Here I am doing what God tells me, and everybody curses me. Now, that sounds like a pity party. It's easy to enter, too easy to enter into a pity party. If you've ever served in a church, you do what you do. Some people may never, never see what you do. But then one day somebody gets mad at you or bad mouth is some, bad mouth something that you do and you go away. I'm not going back there. I can't believe they said they have no idea what I, how much I mean to this church. Um, that's easy to do, but it happens. And if your service to the church, mine, yours, ours, is not for God, then stop now. You're going to get made fun of. You're going to get rebuked. You're going to get ignored. People are going to make fun of you. It's just the way it is. This is the way Jeremiah feels. Everyone curses me. Um, Verse 14, God says, Then I will cause your enemies to bring it into a land you do not know, for a fire has been kindled in my anger. It will burn upon you. It's... This is the way it's going to happen, Jeremiah. You can, you can sing your soliloquy. You can talk about it in private, but he's complaining. It's okay to complain, but only to a point. And then Jeremiah in verse 15 says, You know, O Lord, remember me, take notice of me, and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. Is that okay to pray that? What do you think? I mean, it's done in the Bible. Is it okay? Have you ever done it? Yeah, yeah. you want the Lord to do a vengeance. But you'll feel better if you'll say, Lord, save them. But if you don't, get them. <laughs> you'll at least feel better because it just feels strange. Get them, Lord. Jeremiah could actually do that because God has already said, I'm not going to do anything for these people. They are going into, uh, into captivity. And Jeremiah's, remember me. Take notice of me. Remember what I did. Do we think that God needs to take notice of us? We might think that people need to know what we've done, but... He says there at the end of verse 15, know that for your sake I endure reproach. Lord, they're making fun of me. I'm doing this for you. Verse 16, your words were found and I ate them. In other words, you gave me your words and I consumed them. They became a part of me and your words became for me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I have recalled or I have been called by your name. O Lord God of hosts, I did not sit in the circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because your hand upon me, I sat alone. For you filled me with indignation. Uh, I, I ate your words, I studied, I've prepared for them, I've gone out and taught them. I didn't hang around with all the merrymakers, I didn't do all the things they were doing, I didn't sit in the circle with them, and because of this, you filled me with indignation. Verse 18, why has my pain been perpetual, and my wound incurable, refusing to be healed? Why, God? I've done all of this, why is this happening to me? Well, As I said, I think you can do that for a little while. But Jeremiah's soliloquy went a little too far. And now God calls him to repent in verse 19. Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, then I will restore you. It's almost as if God sat there in silence and said, "Um, are you finished? Are you done complaining? And I think when we go to God and we start complaining like that, for whatever reason, God understands that. But there's a time in which we're to be done. Jeremiah may have gone too far, and so now God tells him, uh, if you return, then I'll restore you. Before me, you will stand, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, and if you extract the precious from the worthless, you will become my spokesman. 
for they, for they, for their part, may turn to you. But as for you, you must not turn to them. Then I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. And though they fight against you, they will not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. Now, I want you to go back to chapter 1, verse 10, where God already did this. He's having to reiterate to Jeremiah what he's already done because Jeremiah is losing or has lost his will to preach. God calls him from the womb. We saw that in chapter 1, verse 5. In verse 10, God says, See, I have appointed you this day over the nations and over the kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow, to build, and to plant. Look at verse 18. Or verse 17. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all that I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, or I will dismay you before them. Now behold, I have made you today as a fortified city and as a pillar of iron and walls of bronze against the whole land, the kings of Judah. So he's already done this. With Ezekiel, he said, I'm going to make your, your forehead as, as hard as flint. People are going to say things to you. They're going to, they're going to blow you off, and it's not going to bother you. Jeremiah the same way. He did that to Jeremiah, but along the way, Jeremiah had this idea of what was going to happen. And we talked about this. And when you get into ministry, you think, okay, if I, I'm going to come out of seminary, as I thought, just give you my own testimony, I'm going to, we're going to change the world. Hey, I know the Bible. I'm going to go out. We're going to do this. We're going to do it right. Everybody else does it wrong. We're going to do it right. You get in there, and bam, things go kind of slow. And when you start a church, man, you get some people that are all excited, and then, then you get some real boneheads. They come through, and they're very discouraging. They can be very discouraging. And then you have people that you think you can trust that you really can't, and they get their feelings hurt. Something happens, and then they have a, a big come-to-Jesus moment with you. They all have you at their house, and they all just take turns just lambasting you on what they wanted you to do and how this should be. And you're left going, wow, Lord, should I even be doing this? Did you even call me to do this? Because this is the worst day ever in my entire life. And then inevitably something happens to bring you back in. And you realize, I've been called to do something that's not very popular, and not everyone's going to like it, and people that you think you love or people that you thought loved you are going to get down on you. And they're going to curse you, and they're going to say horrible things about you. Are you in this to be obedient, Lance, or are you in this to change the world? And I had to learn that 15 years in, 15 years in. I'm in this not to do anything with God's church. It's his church. I'm here to preach God's word, love God's people, and so, so be it. It's made it easier. Yeah, John? Will you indeed be to me like a deceptive stream? With water is unreliable. Do we, that stream we think is going to come out here and, and you're going to make it go elsewhere. Yeah, is that what you're going to do? Are you, don't deceive them, Lord. You ever prayed like that? Lord, you've got to hold your, uphold your name by answering my prayer request. Uh, no, I don't, God's saying. Yeah, Jeremiah uses that word deceptive a couple of times. Lord, you've deceived me. You've deceived us. I thought this, but you had that in mind. And God would probably say, so what are you trying to say? You're the one deceived. I didn't deceive you, though. Let's take a look at a, just look at the lessons from Jeremiah 15. This least lessons I come up with. God does not always answer prayer affirmatively by giving godly people what they ask for. Do you know that by now? Um, if you're new to prayer, you can pray in the name of Jesus all you want. You can pray for what you think is right, and you should. But God has not said, I'm going to give you everything you want, because not everything we pray for is according to his will. And if we're not praying according to his will... 
we're praying for something that, that may benefit us. Now, you might think, well, God wants this person to come to know Christ. Doesn't he want that person to come to know Christ? Do you not understand the doctrine of election? You cannot pray someone into the kingdom of God. But pray for somebody, and God might use that to bring them in. But pray and be, move on with your life. You can't spend the rest of your life fasting and on your face with, with dust and ashes saying, save this person, save this person, I'm going to pray until you do. You don't twist God's arm into that. That is not the way you pray. Pray once, twice, three times maybe and say, I left it with you, Lord. Their salvation is yours. Um, just because you pray doesn't mean God grants it. Let God's will be done, not yours, correct? Jeremiah's failure proves that every sinner needs the prayers of Jesus Christ who stands in the gap for us. Um, Jeremiah couldn't pray for these people. Moses couldn't pray. Samuel couldn't. couldn't. Um, I had a lady call me this the past week, and she had a horrible day with her father who had uh, had a couple of um, uh, strokes. And, and her, the title to the subject of her email was, please pray for me. I can't pray for myself. Uh, very honest, isn't it? I don't know what to pray. I'm, she was distraught, angry, confused. And, and that's what I told her. Let's just talk. Let's, let's, let's think about the things that you know to be true. What do we know to be true? And, and then as she came through it, she began to confess her own sins to me and, and, and learn that God, God was praying for her. Jesus is praying for her. He fills in that gap. What no man or woman can do, Jesus does. In fact, Romans 8, 34 says that, um, that Jesus himself sits at the right hand of God the Father and prays for us. Romans eight twenty six says, who prays for us there? Holy Spirit prays for us with groans too deep for words. So you got the Spirit of God and the Son of God praying to God the Father, the Trinity Himself praying for His people. At times our prayers for God's mercy leave or receive a, a resounding no from God. Sometimes we think He hasn't prayed, He hasn't answered, He's just said no. But you can't say no, Lord. Yes, God can, and He does most of the time, frankly. Jesus' prayers are always effective, unlike ours. Jesus is also the only answer to our need for the perfect sacrifice. Uh, we can't save ourselves. He is the answer. Complain to God about sufferings, but don't blame God. Complain to God, but don't blame God. Sure, we know God uh, could, could fix everything, and we wonder why He doesn't, but that's, that's where we get in trouble. If there is a God, atheists say, then why does He allow evil? And if, he, if there is a God and he allows evil, then he must not be as powerful as evil. That, that's, don't ever let anybody talk you into those two options. There is evil and there is a God. And God uses it for his glory and you and I have everything coming to us that we uh, think we don't deserve. Spiritual renewal comes from recalling God's promises. And Jeremiah becomes renewed. Chapter 16. Um, <laughs> God calls Jeremiah as he doesn't call people like me. Uh, to be the, the laughing stock of society. You know, there's no Hebrew word for bachelor. No Hebrew word for bachelor. At least not in the Bible. Why? Because there was no such thing as a bachelor. Every man was to be married. Every, it was unheard of that a man wouldn't be married. It was unheard of that a woman get, not get married. Anybody quote to me Genesis 2.18? It, it is not good let the man be alone. It's not good. That principle is true all throughout. So God's going to call Jeremiah, however, to be the laughingstock. Word of the Lord came, also came to me saying, you shall not take a wife for yourself, nor have sons or daughters in this place. People would say, what is your problem? Who doesn't get married? You're not going to have children. 
For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters born in this place, and concerning their mothers who bear them, and their fathers who beget them in the land, they will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented or buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground, and come to an end by sword and famine, and their carcasses will become food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. Good reason to not get married. For thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning. Don't go to a funeral. Don't get married. Don't have kids. Don't have a family. Don't go to a funeral. Don't go to peoples um, who are, are mourning the dead. Don't lament or console them. For I have withdrawn my peace from this people. Verse 6, both great men and small will die in this land, and they will not be buried. I think it's, it's almost as if God says, lament and, and mourn with those who mourn, as we do in our dispensation, because there's hope. That's, that's why we do that with people we love, or might, maybe people we don't even know. We do that because there's hope. There's no hope for them. Jeremiah, don't waste your time. Don't waste your time consoling the dead, or the survivors of the dead. Verse 8, moreover, you shall not go into the house of feasting, or sit with them, or eat and drink. Don't go to a funeral, don't get married, have children, don't go to a party. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I am going to eliminate from this place before your eyes and in your time the voice of rejoicing and the voice of gladness, the voice of the groom and the voice of the bride. Uh, Jeremiah was really given a great job. You're going to be, here's a great calling for you in 600 B.C. Oh, goodness. The lack of self-pity was significant of the judgment to come, and that's what God put him through. Verse 10, Now when you tell this people all these words, they will say to you, for what reason? Here's how naive. We would even use the word stupid after all he said up to this point. For what reason has the Lord declared all this great calamity against us? Aren't we good people? People have said that to me. Why do you talk about sin and calling us sinners? Doesn't God love everyone? And what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Do you see how pig-headed you don't realize you're idolaters? Aside from the fact that Jeremiah's been telling you that, you don't realize it? Isn't it amazing how people live in sin today and seemingly don't realize it? One of the ways people do today is by living together before they're married. We just live in this adulterous relationship that was punishable by death in the Old Testament, and that's just what everybody does. We use foul language in the Lord's name in vain because that's just the way the culture talks. What have we done wrong? Well, um, you need to move out. You need to stop having intercourse at all until you get married. Rededicate your life to the Lord. Clean your mouth up because your mouth is significant of what your heart is. You think those people are coming back from marriage counseling from Lance Waldy? Think they're going to leave a good Google review? What have we done, Lord, while they're living in sin? Verse 11, God says, Then you are say to them, It is because your forefathers have forsaken me, declares the Lord, and have followed other gods and served them and bowed down to them. But me they have forsaken and have not kept my laws. You too have done evil. So it's your ancestors have, but you too have done evil, even more than your forefathers. You should have seen what they did. Turned around. So verse 13, so I will hurl you out of this land. That's just, can you just see someone picking up something and just hurling it in? Like a piece of junk thrown into a body of water. This is what God will do to his people. And he will take you into captivity at the end of verse 13, and there you will serve other gods day and night. 
or I will grant you no favor. Yet, look at verse 14 and following. You've got God saying, in spite of all this, after having hurled you out, I'm going to restore you. Verse 15, but as the Lord lives who brought up the sons of Israel from the land of the north and from the countries where he banished them, for I will restore them to their own land, which I have given to their fathers. Prior to that, and you see throughout the Old Testament when you read it, is that people are always saying, do you remember the Lord brought us out of captivity in Egypt? Brought us out of slavery in Egypt? They're always remembering the Exodus, which is a great thing to remember. But God is saying that's going to be, it's going to pale in comparison to how I brought you out of exile and back into this land. But in the interim, or before that happens, verse 16, I'm going to send for you many fishermen, declares the Lord. This is, this is language. He's not saying, okay, I'm going to send you a bunch of anglers. I'm going to send you fishermen, these are people, and they will fish for them. In other words, he's going to send Babylonians, and they're going to throw out lines, and they're going to drag these people in. And afterwards, I will send them hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain, from every hill, from the clefts of the rocks, where they're worshiping other gods. I'm going to have these Babylonians, they're going to, they're going to expunge you from the land like fishermen bringing fish out of water. And fishermen in those days didn't throw in a line, reel it in one fish at a time. It was a big net just pulling them in. Uh, same with a hunter going out and hunting and killing. I'm going to do this to my people before I bring them back. Note verse 17. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. Um, note that because people will say today, God can't stand in the presence of sin. Um, can he? Is God omnipresent? Well, what choice does he have but to stand in the presence of sin? It's everywhere. Yes, God, God is not, oh, don't show me sin. God's presence is in sin, is everywhere a sin, because we are everywhere. God is always seeing it. It's always before his eyes. Verse 21, therefore, behold, I am going to make them know. This time I will make them know my power and my might, and they shall know that my name is Yahweh. Let's take a look at some lessons from 16. I only have two points on 16. There is no reason to rejoice or celebrate things, even today, like marriage, family, children, parties, etc., if one has not made peace with God through faith in Jesus Christ. No reason to celebrate with people. Weddings at all. Forget what's going on with Alistair Begg. Forget. You don't need to go to any wedding to celebrate another person. This might relieve many of you uh, in a wonderful way. You don't need to go celebrate with anyone who has not made been been made right with God through Jesus Christ. There's nothing to celebrate. They're going to hell. Why celebrate a wedding? Why celebrate a baby? Send them a card that says, I'd love to celebrate your baby. Congratulations. But uh, I'm, I'm really more torn by the fact that I'm mourning your eternal soul. that's going to burn in hell. How do you think that would go over? <laughs> I'd send you a baby gift, but uh, here's a Bible. Now, I'm not saying that's the application, but it would be interesting, wouldn't it? We put God first, as the first commandment tells us. Derek Kidner says, the first commandment is always the last to be considered. Love the Lord your God. No other gods before me. Love me first. That's the last to be considered. No people, we as people are all, uh, maybe it was you before you came to know Christ. Maybe it's, it's some of us struggling as we know Christ. We're always trying to make God like us cool like us, kind of strip down his holiness and put him like, you know, like he's our buddy. 
Uh, we're always making a God that, that puts up with things. It's okay if you live together before marriage. God's okay with that. That whole, that whole campaign out there is Jesus gets us, you know? Yeah, I mean, th- that's nice to see some of that in the midst of all the Super Bowl filth. But the whole point is saying, hey, Jesus, he's cool with it. Right on. He's a, he's a righteous dude. You know, Jesus gets us? Yeah, that is our problem. That Jesus gets us? That we have a wicked heart? That's the problem. So make the campaign, give the solution. He gets us, and that means you're in big trouble, pal. So get him. Change it. I mean, it'd be so easy. Instead of Jesus gets us, it's get Jesus. See, I'm onto something here. And I don't even have a marketing degree. Chapter 17. The sin of Judah is written down with an iron stylus, with a diamond point in it. It's engraved upon the tablet of the heart. In other words, it's not written in a pencil. It's not going away. Remembering their altars, verse 2, as they remember their children, so they remember their altars and their asherim. Now, Asher was a, uh, the female counterpart to Baal. Baal, B-A-A-L, is the god of thunder, the god of lightning, the god who sends rain on the land and, and, and makes the seed grow. Uh, Asherah is his wife. Uh, this is a, no, these aren't real gods, but that's what people call them. So you've got a male and a female. Um, and this is where the people have been making their, they go to the highest places they can in Israel, the highest mountain, because that gets you closer to the gods and they can hear you better because they've been around for a long time and they have real difficult hearing. <sighs> Just want to make sure you're with me. Yeah, what? I like that, Dave. People go up there by the green trees and on the high hills, O mountain of mine in the countryside. It's where they're going, and, and their sin has been etched there. When you worship another god, God remembers that. It's not in pencil. Verse 4, and you will even of yourself let go of your inheritance that I gave you, and I will make you serve your enemies in the land which you do not know, for you have kindled a fire in my anger, which will burn forever. Now, these are things that you, when you're looking for, for the character of God, in, in, the, in the Old Testament, the prophets, you always underline that. Does God get angry? And you think about that. Do I get angry? What makes me angry? Um, typically, we're angry at things that just don't go our way. It's a selfish anger. Our anger could be anyone from someone who cuts us off on the road or, or something doesn't, uh, you don't feel quite right. A spouse may have done or said something we didn't like, burned the toast or something like that. We get annoyed at these things. This didn't write, eh, I'm kind of in a bad mood. Why? Well, so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that. Uh, we get, it's a, it's, a, it's a selfish anger. Why would God get angry? Does God have a right to get angry? Is it all the petty little things? God does get angry. His anger burns and will burn forever. We know he's angry over our sin, especially when you've told someone to do something. If you have subordinates at work or at home, you have children, uh, and you tell them what to do, here's what you do. Do you just blow it off when you tell your kids to make their bed or something? Ah, that Daniel, he's, he's such a rascal. That rascal. You know, Cheryl, he didn't make his bed again. Oh, he's such a cute kid, isn't he? Tell him again today, Lance. Okay, Daniel, make your bed. I didn't do it again. That rascal. Uh, God's anger is over that, but not because we don't understand, because he knows we do understand. 
We understand that anger. God's is righteous. Verse 5, thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in mankind. Folks, I hope you've got that underlined. And in every election that you go to, and every time you let yourself get taken away by election results, we've got an election year, a lot of fire out there, a lot of venom, underline and go back to that. Whoever you're voting for is not the ticket to happiness. It is not our Savior. They are imperfect people. No matter who it is that's elected, we're going to let you down. going to let us down. We cannot put our trust in mankind. The, the first issue comes from number six. He will be like a bush in the desert and will not, not the person that we trust, but us, by trusting in mankind, we're going to be like a bush in the desert and will not see when prosperity comes, but will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. Loneliness. Loneliness is one of the results of putting our trust in mankind. Because when we tell people to trust in another human being, um, or just tell ourselves, tell others to trust in me, trust in me. I'm the one. I'm my own God. I do what I want. It's just a lonely existence. No one likes that person. Number two is in verse nine. The heart is more deceitful than all else. No, that's not number two. Number two is number 11. We'll come back to verse nine. It's a passage. It's a big passage. But number, uh, the, the second result of trusting in mankind is in verse 11. The partridge, as a partridge that hatches eggs, which it has not laid, so is he who makes fortune, but unjustly. In the midst of his days, it will forsake him. In the end, he will be a fool. Poverty. Trusting in man brings poverty. Loneliness and poverty. And then the third one, he says, uh, verse 13, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you, that would be to put their trust in mankind, will be put to shame. Those who turn away on earth will be written down because they have forsaken the fountain of living water, even the Lord. And this is what we're prone to do. But the one who, who does trust, not in man, but in God, look at verse 8. He will be like a tree planted by the water. What psalm is that? Psalm 1. He will be like a tree planted by the water. You know, a tree planted by water endures. It sends down roots where the water is. And on a really hot day or on a really hot season, it flourishes. It's still okay. Dry season because it's sent down roots deeply. This is the speaking of one who puts their trust in God. When times get difficult, we don't freak out. Nothing can shake us. We find our nourishment from our deep roots. We understand God. We take all the bad things that have happened in our lives. And you have to. The bad things are what makes those roots go deep. The harder the wind blows, the deeper our roots go. We have to be that way. And when they come, and they get, seem to get harder every time, don't they? Our trials get more and more difficult as we get older. I was telling a guy today, I said, you know, I'm looking forward to my second trip to the New Testament, if God allows me to do that once I finish Luke. If he doesn't take me home, and I'm hoping he will, but if he doesn't, I'm going to go through the second time through, through the New Testament. And uh, I first taught Romans at this church back in 2007. Cheryl was listening to it the other day. She said, you sound young in it. And the, and the, the quality, audio quality is terrible. I said, well, that's not my fault. I'm sounding young, but I can't wait to teach it again. Not because Romans has changed, but because I've changed. I've got so many more years of experience, so many more years of pain, so much more understanding, wisdom. I'm not a wise man, but I'm wiser now than I was then. Looking forward to that. The, those difficult times have made my roots run, run deeper. He will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots by a stream. It will not fear. 
and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green. It will not be anxious in a year of drought, nor cease to yield fruit. We should look out at the trees, that big one in our yard right over here, um, between the buildings, between the house. Uh, we made, when we built these buildings, we would not let the, the construction workers tear that down. They wanted to tear all the trees down. And we showed them how you're going to build between the trees. Many of them were taken down, but not that one. And I love that tree. I mean, it's big and beautiful, but it says something. There's something spiritual about that tree. This is an old tree farm, this property. Um, but that one is the biggest and the best. And those roots go deeper. And when it rains, that whole area looks like a lake. Uh, when it rains, if you've ever been here, I mean, the whole yard is full of water. You can't you don't even know there's grass. But it sinks down, and those roots are, are deep. And no matter how soft that ground is, that tree remains upright. Now, I hope it doesn't fall on the building tomorrow. That would be bad. <laughs> but that tree speaks of, uh, of what a Christian is. Because you know, you know, we know we had a rough summer, didn't we? There wasn't much rain at all. That tree kept on, kept on putting out green leaves. It keeps on giving us great shade. We take it for granted. It's so big and beautiful, we take things like that for granted. Because if it was gone, we would miss it, wouldn't we? But it's indicative of something strong, deep, and it's been there for a really long time. That's what God is saying about the person who puts their trust and their faith in him. Look at verse 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You ever hear somebody say, follow your heart. My heart tells me this. We're not talking about the, the organ here. The heart would be the, the heart of our affections, our intellect, what we think, what we, what we feel. If the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick, what are we doing listening to it? Why would we ever listen to it? I got a pair of glasses a few years ago at a different place than I normally go. doesn't matter either place. Both places are, are lost as geese. But um, the lady said, um, she said, oh, you're a preacher. That's great. And I was about to go through the, oh, you understand the gospel. She said, that's good for you. But, you know, she said, I just listen to my heart. That's all I do. I just listen to my heart. And every time I would try to get something out to correct her, she, she would talk over me. She wasn't going to have any part of it. And I thought, okay, well, I mean, I'm not going to sit here and get louder and cram it down her throat. But her life was to be led by her heart. And I did get a chance to quote that. The heart is desperately sick. Oh, no. The heart tells me. I'm a... Uh, one of the, my favorite uh, singing groups, rock group, was Triumph. Remember Triumph? Canadian group, by the way, Julia. Canadian. Uh, Triumph. And they had some great songs. And it was somewhat clean. So, it was actually, it was very clean music. Um, but a lot of their music is about follow your heart. Follow your heart. I keep my magic in my heart. Whole song called Follow Your Heart. One of their big songs. And I thought, no, no, reject the heart. It's wicked above all else. Let's take a look at some lessons from Jeremiah 17, 9. Number one, as, as this says, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, don't follow your heart. It cannot be trusted. It cannot be healed. It cannot be understood. It is devious and incurable, totally unreliable. It's the doctrine of total depravity. You know that T in the tulip in Calvinism? Total depravity. Every human being is sinful through and through. No part of us remains untouched by sin. All the lies, conspiracies, betrayals, and murders in the history of the world have sprung from the deception of the human heart. Hitler was sincere in his belief about Jews. 
He was sincerely wrong, but it was his wicked heart that told him that and taught other people to think it. We look at verse 10, which follows it. If the heart is desperately sick, look at verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. That's the most terrifying thought in the Bible. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. It is God who opens our hearts. And I've quoted, do you know the story of in Acts 16, 14, the woman named Lydia? Paul is in Philippi. He's preaching the gospel. Goes down to a place. There wasn't even a synagogue there. There's some people that gathered, some women that gathered. Lydia is one of them. And it says, God, it doesn't say that Lydia opened her heart to the gospel, does it? Her heart is desperately sinful, desperately wicked. We don't open our hearts. We don't invite Jesus into our hearts. Nowhere in the Bible do you see that. God opened her heart to believe. That's what it says. Of course, we also, it's with our hearts we believe uh, in our hearts so that we can confess with our tongues that Jesus is Lord. It's God that has to do it because the heart is desperately sick. You know, um, the thing about the doctrine of election is that uh, so many people rail against it. And uh, some people don't rail against it. They just say, we don't believe it. You know, just we'd rather not hear it. But if you believe in the doctrine of total depravity, you have to believe in election. If we are totally depraved, sinful through and through, dead in our trespasses and sins, there's no way to be saved unless God makes that way. He has to call. He has to predestine and call his people to himself. It all hinges on the first point, total depravity. And we see it biblically. This isn't the only passage that teaches it, of course. And let's take a look at chapter 17. I'm sorry, are you in 17? The latter part of 17 um, concerns the, uh, if you've read this, uh, you're going to, your questions, they're legitimate questions, all of our questions about the Sabbath. Um, He says in verse 19, thus says the Lord to me, go and stand in the public gate through which the kings of Judah come in and go out. In other words, go out to the local mall. Or really, the bigger, the bigger place of worship today is not the mall, it's the baseball park, isn't it? Don't you think? I do. I mean, I think we've learned that baseball is the highest. You find a baseball arena in this town, and that's the biggest church in town. That's where people go to worship and, and hope and pray that their kid becomes the next Babe Ruth. Go stand in the public gate. In other words, where everybody is, verse 19, verse 20, and say to them, listen to the word of the Lord, kings of Judah. He's promoting street preaching here. And all Judah and all its inhabitants of Jerusalem who come through these gates, thus says the Lord, take heed for yourselves and do not carry any load on the Sabbath day or bring anything in through the gates of Jerusalem. In other words, stop working on Saturday. That's the Sabbath. Six days a week work, stop working on the Sabbath. God says, I'm giving you six days a week to make all the money you want to make. Stop working one day a week. So he goes and tells people who are doing that. Now, how's that going to go over? Are people going to say, hey, did you hear what he said? He tells us to stop working on the Sabbath. Most of preaching is not meant to change anybody. I think, I think most preaching, you go announce things like this. It's just meant to maybe plant a seed, maybe water a seed or just hack everybody off. That's typically what it does, because this kind of message doesn't make people happy. If you watch Ray Comfort's videos, he's an outdoor preacher. Um, sometimes he'll give us, he'll air some of the people that are yelling back at him. Uh, and, and they hate what he says, because he tells them they're sinners. And he does it with love, but when he doesn't have a microphone, he's having to scream it, <coughs> like all street preachers have had to do. 
So he tells them, stop. Verse 22, you shall not bring in a load out of your houses on the Sabbath day, nor do any work, but keep the Sabbath day holy, as I commanded your forefathers. Verse 24, but it will come about if you listen attentively to me, declares the Lord, to bring no load in, <clears throat> excuse me, through the gates of this city. I've got to do that again. To do, bring no load into the city on the Sabbath day, but to keep the Sabbath day holy by doing no work on it, then there will come in through the gates of this city. If you will stop working, then will come into the gates of the work of this city. Kings and princes sitting on the throne of David. Riding in chariots and on horses, they and their princes, the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and this city will be inhabited forever. Now, here's what I think. First of all, I want you to know that the Sabbath day is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And the Mosaic Covenant are the Ten Commandments. Obey these commandments and I will bless you. Disobey them and I will curse you. The sign of the commandments, the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, sign of the Abrahamic Covenant, circumcision. The sign of the Mosaic Covenant is the Sabbath. So when he says keep the Sabbath, he's essentially saying keeping all the commandments so that I can bless you. Because if you go to Israel today, they are fanatical about the Sabbath, but they have no love for God. And they certainly don't believe in Jesus, but they're fanatical about the Sabbath day. It's, it's comical to be in Israel uh, on a Saturday. It's just comical. Especially when you get on an elevator. You go in, it's the most, it's the oddest thing. You're in your hotel and you get in the elevator and there's six people in the elevator. They're just standing there with the doors open. And you think you're on candid camera. You're just, for those of you who don't know, well, anyway, look it up. Uh, and you stand there and you go, okay. Um, what, you can't touch a button if you're in Israel on, Sabbath, on Saturday. So there are Jews in that elevator waiting for a Gentile, a dumb, stupid Gentile that they already think is going to hell. They don't care. Will you punch the button for us? Because we can't. That's their view of the Sabbath. They're crazy fanatical about it. When you get to your hotel, if you drive in, if you were heaven forbid that you fly into Israel on a Saturday, you will actually get from the airport to your hotel like that because there's no traffic. But you'll get there, and you're, you've flown all night. You're ready to get into your hotel room, take a shower, get some meal. Oh, no, 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 no. If it's not 6 o'clock, and you get there at 3.30, you will sit in the waiting room from 3.30 until 6 o'clock, and you will watch the employees of that, of that hotel just sit there, file their nails, and do nothing because the Sabbath doesn't end until 6 p.m. And you're going, can we not get our keys? Oh, no, I can't reach under there and give you the key. That would break the Sabbath. Oh, and you're so God-fearing. Uh, so ridiculous. And so God is not saying, if you'll just keep that day and not do any work, I'll bring in all the, the, the blessing. It's keep the whole law out of your love for me, and I will bless you. Now that transcends into our day when we start trying to keep various laws. So let's take a look. Remember the Sabbath. What does God say? Let's take a look at the, at the commandment itself. Exodus chapter 20. If you don't know where the commandments are, it's in Exodus 20 and in Deuteronomy 5. And so God says, beginning in verse 8, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, or your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. Note this, 
For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Don't miss that, folks. The earth is not millions and billions of years old. It was made in six days. Right here. We learned it in Genesis. We see it in Exodus. And God makes the standard for the seven-day work week that we rest one day in commemoration of how God in six days made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, so remember the Sabbath. So what does that mean to you and me? Saturday is a Sabbath. And we haven't met here on Saturday ever for, for a worship service. Our Sabbath of rest as a Christian is every day. We live the Sabbath. Why? Our soul has found rest from all work. Oh, it doesn't mean we can't go out and make a living. In fact, we're supposed to do that. But we're not striving to please God. God has already made provision for us, and we find rest in Him. Our Sabbath is always. That's why you don't find it in the New Testament. You've got to make sure you keep the Sabbath. From the Sabbath, what is called the Lord's Day. So in Judaism, those early Jews, including the Apostle Paul from the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees, unheard of that a Jew would change their Sabbath worship to Sunday and yet they did the day the Lord resurrected from the grave Saturday Sabbath replaced in the early church by Sunday Um, Paul speaks of taking up the offering in the Corinthian church on the first day of the week John said I was in the spirit on the Lord's day first day of the week and is the revelation 1 verse 10 The Saturday Sabbath from the Old Testament was just a mere shadow of things to come, according to Colossians 2.17. Just a shadow. What's the shadow? Shadow is looking to something that has a substance. It pointed toward the permanent rest in Jesus the Messiah. So they're resting on the Sabbath. Why do we do this? Why do we do this? God might say, just wait, just wait. I'll show you the figure. Jesus, he is that rest. You're commemorating rest. He is that rest. We find our rest in him. For Christians... Every day is Easter. Every day. I should say every Sunday is Easter. Because we celebrate on Sunday because it's the day our Lord is resurrected. We come together on a special day. I mean, we worship Christ everywhere we go, every day. But coming together on Sunday, even on Wednesday night, there's just a special time. It's different than anything else we do. I mean, what else do you do where you come and you sit still for an hour in, in this life? It used to be that's all people. This was entertainment back then. Today, you just got to grit your teeth and try to get through it, oftentimes. Every day, every Sunday is Easter, celebrating Christ's resurrection. Sunday is a day for Bible teaching, Bible reading as well, fellowship with each other, with other Christians. Fellowship can be getting together, but real fellowship is, um, I guess a simple way of putting it, would be two people who know Christ, getting together and talking about Christ. That would be Christian fellowship. Doing things in the name of Christ. Otherwise, we just went to a ball game. We talked about sports all night. Well, that's some fellowship. But Christian fellowships, when you get together and talk about Christ, is a real rudimentary way of saying it. It's also a day of rest, of showing mercy. All kinds of things we might not otherwise do because we're too busy making a living. The Sabbath is for man, Jesus said, not man for the Sabbath, which means there are no rules that you can and can't do on the Sabbath. Can't do this, can't do that. That means that man is is, uh, being ruled over by the Sabbath. But God said, here, I want you to have a day off. Now, for people like uh, doctors, maybe you have to work on Sunday, uh, or a police officer whose schedule has him or her on a Sunday, um, we're not going to get legalistic, but there's a day of the week we should and must 
per God's gift to us, set aside, doing something different. Does that mean you can't do what you, what you might do on a Monday, on a Sunday? You can't uh, um, do the same things? Not necessarily. Remember, it's not about what you can and can't do. It's God saying, here, take this day off. Don't go. You had six days to work. Uh, shut it down for the, for the Sunday. Um, does God bless that? He can. He does. You ever see chariots of fire? You blessed Eric Little. Um, there's all kinds of good stories. Whenever I read a commentary, uh, no matter what commentary I read, somebody's got a story of how God blessed them for honoring that. Um, I mean, I work on <laughs> it's the biggest work day of the week for me on Sunday. But it is a different work than I would do otherwise. Plus, I'm not out making money say, the other six days of the week. And most of you think, well, what else do you do? You just work one day a week, right? I mean, isn't that all you do? Now, some people would be surprised. Might be disappointed, too. <laughs> and, of course, we know from Hebrews 4, 9, and 11 that there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. Though we rest right now in Christ, um, we're awaiting that eternal rest, aren't we? And we say, the sooner the better. Come, Lord Jesus. The Sabbath is significant. And when God says, if we're going to take a principle from the Old Testament on the Sabbath day, um, it's to say, honor me. Honor God. Stop thinking about yourself all the time. I re God recognizes we have to go to work. There are other things our mind has to get into. Unless you're a monk, uh, you've got to go to work and do things. It might not include thinking about God. So take time and make sure you are doing that. God gives us that day. We live in a day where, I mean, 20 years ago, not even 20 years ago, in this community, it was unheard of that there be something on Sunday. Uh, now there's tournaments, volleyball, soccer, practice, baseball. And it's so disappointing to see Christian parents doing that. Well, what's the next generation thinking? What are your kids thinking when you say, well, it must be okay? That's what they're saying. It must be okay. Dad has taken us to this might not be a habit. You might say, well, we don't do it often. And that's your call. I'm not going to make it legalistic from my standpoint. But what does it say? And what does it say to a child whose parents say, absolutely not? There may be a tournament. We're not going to be there. Why not, Dad? We go to church on Sunday. That's what we do. We celebrate. And I get that from, from a Sunday school teacher I had in the seventh grade, Kiefer Englehart. When I was in the seventh grade, what are you, 13 years old in the seventh grade? This man was in his 80s, and his wife taught with him. 80-year-old uh, family, and they shuffled around just like, just like these wonderful, old, wise people would at that time. And Kiefer Ingerhart told me, now that's not any of you 80-year-olds. I know, that doesn't happen here. Things are different now. These people would be 150 now. <laughs> but Kiefer said, we made up our minds when we married. He said that every Sunday we were going to be in church. He said, that way we never woke up on a Sunday morning and had to nudge each other and said, do you want to go to church today? It was never a discussion, he said. We already made that decision. We're going to church. Now, mind you, back then, we didn't have the lure of baseball, soccer, whatever else that's out there, all those other worship centers out there, and all the ideas that parents have about their kids making, uh, uh, becoming an all-pro whatever. So if the, if, the, if the temptation's all the greater, make that decision now. When you have babies, make that decision then. If your kid doesn't make the major leagues, thank God. By the time a major league ball player gets into MLB, you know how many groupies have tempted that child? Do you know how many 
crazy people and filthy language and things they've seen by the time they get to MLB? Some of them are so messed up, so messed up, so far beyond repair. You're thinking, you know, no $100 million contract in the world is worth what my child went through to get there. Should have taken them to church. Look out for their souls. One of those ways is to mimic what God would have us do as good parents. Go to church on Sunday. It's the Lord's Day. There's something very powerful, something mysterious about gathering together on a Sunday morning to sit still, sing songs of praise, and hear God's word preached. There's something mysterious. Don't ever get rid of that X factor in your mind. There's something powerful in that. People's lives are changed as a result. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the principles that we can draw and the outright admonitions that we get from your word. A, a one that's so old, 26 year, 2,600 years old in this book that we can go back. Because you haven't changed. And your, uh, your word remains unchanged, as do you. We're the ones that change. And we would desperately like to change your word. We would desperately like to do things our way. Convict us. Show us. Remind us you get angry. Remind us that you are wrathful. Remind us that it takes so little to obey, just to turn our hearts, just to repent of our ways back to your way. For the blessing that we so long for, for the peace that eludes us doing things our way. Impress upon us your holiness, your greatness tonight, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have a great week. End whatever's left of it. We'll see you back on Sunday. been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 